That brings us now to chapter 2. And in the first 13 verses of chapter 2, God tests faith by attitude and action in respect of persons. Now, how do you treat people in the different stratas of society today? How do you treat the rich man? How do you treat the poor man? How do you treat the average man that you meet today? Now, he's going to deal with that in this section here. And this section is actually God's war on poverty. And then the interesting thing is God's war on riches. God's war on poverty and riches. And his is a little different than our government. Our government has sort of fouled it up. Didn't make any difference which party was in office. They sure fouled up this, and the state can't handle it either. Frankly, what is it that's the real problem? Well, what he's going to say here, and James has a great deal to say about the rich. This man almost sounds like a radical, but I don't think he's a radical in the modern sense of the word. But I tell you, he certainly goes after the rich. When we get to the fifth chapter, we find out he's talking to them directly. And here, he has something to say about this. Now, both poverty and riches can be a curse. And part of the curse of sin upon the race actually is poverty and riches. The writer of the Proverbs says, "...give me neither poverty nor riches." The most difficult people to reach today are the most poverty-stricken people and those that are the richest. It seems to be almost impossible to reach either class with the Word of God. What is the problem? Well, the problem actually is an imbalance of the wealth of the world. Now, today, the big problem is not actually between Democrat and Republican, the real problem today is not between the races. I don't think that it's a black and white problem in our country today. And I don't think that's the problem in the world. The problem in the world today is the imbalance of the wealth of the world. Here is a nation like India with millions, and I saw figures the other night that by 2000, that there will be one billion people in India today. And even with the tremendous population, and they have one in five of the population of the world, there is famine and starvation. They starve by the thousands over there today. And look at the luxury and the abundance that the wealthy have today. Now, God goes after that problem, by the way, in this epistle. And he's on the side of the poor. I'm very delighted to say that. After all, have you ever noticed the way the Lord Jesus came into the world? He wasn't a rich man's boy. He wasn't born with a spoon in his mouth. He was born to die on a cross, my friend. And he was born in poverty. He was born in a borrowed stable. He had to borrow sandwiches from a little lad to feed the crowd. He spoke from a borrowed boat. He never had a place to lay his head. He borrowed a coin to illustrate a truth. There was a twofold reason why he borrowed that coin. He wanted to use the other man's money. Well, he didn't have one himself. He borrowed a little donkey to ride into Jerusalem. 
he borrowed a room to celebrate the Passover, and he died on a borrowed cross. It belonged to Barabbas, not to him. And they put him in a borrowed tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea. May I say to you, he's going to talk about that here. When I was in college, we had a preacher that came, and he talked upon the blessings of poverty. Now, I was a poor boy, and I mean poor, friends. I was going to school on borrowed money and working full time. And that man spoke every morning in chapel, and I was told that he got $15,000 a year. Now, that was back when a dollar was worth a dollar and not 26 cents. And that was a lot of money in that day for a preacher. And you know what he had to say just ran off my mind like water on a duck's back. Why? He had no message for me, blessings of poverty. I just happened to know since I was born that way and I haven't got too far from it yet. The thing is that, friends, there's no blessings in poverty. Part of the curse that Christ bore was poverty, by the way. And riches can be a curse, as he's going to show in this epistle and Paul had already said the love of money is the root of all evil. And Paul and James certainly agreed here. You can spend your money for the wrong items. You can deposit your money in a wrong bank. Gather not up for yourself treasures on earth. And all the banks are telling you today where to put your money. God says, I got a bank, and it'll be up there for you. Now, James will be harsh with the rich. We'll see that in the fifth chapter. And in Proverbs 38, I should give you that. Give me neither poverty nor riches. That should be, I think, the philosophy of a Christian. Now, what is God's solution to the problem of poverty? It's not rob the rich to take care of the indigent, the lazy, the indolent, the drones, the loafers, and the sluggards, and the laggards. On the other hand, God would never destroy the dignity and the self-respect and the integrity and the honor of the poor by placing them on charity. God's war on poverty and riches does not march under the banner of the dollar where millions are appropriated. And it's not aimed at the head or the stomach primarily, but at the heart. War against class distinctions and divisions of believers. That is the thing that he's talking about here. And it's been brought about by money, of course, the poor and the rich. Now listen to him in chapter 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now what he is saying here, when he says have not the faith, he says hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, you notice he is called our Lord Jesus Christ here. James is his half-brother, you must remember, according to the flesh. But he gives him here this full name, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what he calls him, the Lord of glory. Now, here is a strong assertion of the deity of Christ, and do you know that I know of no one that was in a better position to pass on the deity of Christ than a younger brother of the Lord Jesus that was brought up in the same home with him? Frankly, I think he is in a better position to speak on the deity of Christ 
than some theologian sitting in a musty library in a swivel chair in New York City that is far removed from the reality of this day. And I think he's really far out and removed from the reality of the first century and the home in which Jesus was raised. So I go along with James, if you don't mind. Now, will you notice, he says, though, don't profess faith in Christ and at the same time be a spiritual snob. Don't join some little clique in the church. All believers are brethren, and this has to do with denominations and in the body of Christ. And there is a fellowship of believers. A friendship should be over them as a banner today. Now, James is addressing the total community of believers, the rich, the poor, the influential, the common people, the high, the low, the bond and free, the Jew and the Gentile, the Greek and the barbarian, male and female. And they're all one in Christ when they've come to Christ. He's talking to believers now. And there is a brotherhood, a body of believers. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the common denominator. Friendship and fellowship is the legal tender among believers. Why, the Old Testament, you remember, taught Israel not to regard the person of the rich or the poor. God taught that in the Mosaic system. And you remember, Simon Peter learned when he went down to Joppa. You remember when God let down that sheet with all kinds of animals that was in it. And he said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. And back over in the 19th chapter of Leviticus, in the 15th verse, God says, "...ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor." And a child of God today. Now, he uses a stinging illustration. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in fine apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. Now, the word assembly here means really a synagogue. And evidently, the Jewish Christians were calling the place where they met and they had no buildings in that day that they had built. So they called it a synagogue, probably in a home. But in many places, the chances are they rented a synagogue. And I was very much interested in the synagogue in old Tiberias, not in New Tiberias, which is a mile down by the Sea of Galilee. But this is up a little, that is, toward where the Jordan River flows out. About a mile, there's a synagogue there. There is a synagogue in several places which are quite interesting. And apparently the early church would use it because they'd meet on Sunday and not on Saturday. So they didn't conflict with the meeting of the Jews. By the way, that's another good argument of why the church met on Sunday. Now, will you notice, he says here, if they're coming to your assembly a man with a gold ring and fine apparel, and there coming also a poor man in vile raiment. Now, let's look at that for just a moment. With a gold ring doesn't mean just a single ring. It means a gold ring man. 
Actually, it means that he had rings on every finger. It said that one man had six rings on one finger. And then there's something else said about goodly apparel here means that he had on fine clothing, bright clothing. He was ostentatious, if you please. And goodly apparel here is fine clothing contrasted to the clothing of the poor man. Someone has said today that some go to church to close their eyes and others to eye the clothes. We have made Sunday, we Christians, is the time we put on our Sunday, go to meet and clothes. And a great many people actually come to church overdressed. And my, they feel very fine when they do that. It's pretentious. There's a dash and a splash and a flash about them. There is a pomp and pomposity. It's glitter and gaudy and vulgar and vain, too. This rich man makes his entrance with flags flying, fanfare of trumpets, and there's parade and pageant. He drives up in his gold Cadillac, and he gets out. His chauffeur opens the door for him, and he walks in, strutting like a peacock. Now, that is actually the thing the Lord Jesus used in that, not parable, but the true story of the rich man and Lazarus. And in Luke, the 16th chapter, verse 19, this is what the Lord Jesus said. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. Now, what does it mean he fared sumptuously? That means he put on a dog. That means he tried to live above everybody else. Now, the poor man that James mentions here, he comes in maybe with tattered and torn clothing, maybe clean, but it's patched up. And there's an evidence of patches and poverty. He may be even shabby and shoddy. He may be dilapidated and deteriorated. He may have seen better days, but he didn't have any Sunday clothes. And now, James places these men in contrast. And each one is at the extreme end of a social ladder. Now, I know that in our fluent society today, we don't see too much of this. We actually dress up for other occasions today. But certainly a great many use church, and certainly the Easter parade is an evidence of that. And I used to make wisecracks on Easter Sunday about the ladies' hats and my wife told me ladies didn't like it, so I had to give that up. But I would get up sometime and look out over the congregation and say, well, they're as wild as ever, and everybody knew what we were talking about. But when I began in the ministry, and many of you have heard me tell this, but I started out wanting to look like a preacher, and I think that I really overdid it. I wore a Prince Albert coat and striped trousers, and I had a wing collar and a black bow necktie. And you'd think I was a barker in a circus or the mater d' at the Wald Astoria in New York City. And then one day I looked down at a couple, and they were people of means, in fact, very wealthy. And I noticed how unostatiously this man was dressed. He had on a very high-priced suit, but it was very modest. And his wife well-dressed, but not overdressed. And I thought, my, here I am up here, dressed like a person ought not to be dressed. 
that's coming in to worship God. And by the way, I wore a derby hat in that day. So the next Sunday, I came out with everyday clothes, and I've been wearing them ever since, just like the man that's sitting down in the pew. Why? Because there's a danger of putting an emphasis on clothes. Now, he says this in verse 3, And ye have respect to him that weareth the fine clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. In other words, he put him way back where the ushers sit, or he had him stand up. And in that day, why, there were a few seats down front, and only the prominent people sat in those. And there was a day actually in this country that they were paid pews, and they had a little door to them, and only the family that paid for that pew could sit in that pew on Sunday. You couldn't sit with who you wanted to sit with. And today, we have the little cliques that take a certain section in a church, and they sit there, and woe to the stranger, especially if he's not well-dressed, that comes in and sits next to that crowd. He'll get a cold shoulder, I can assure you that. Now, that's what James is talking about. He says here, "...are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges with evil thoughts?" James put these men in contrast, and he says, now you take a look at them, and you are actually being partial in yourselves. In other words, he says here, hearken, my beloved brethren, this is verse 5, and he's talking out of the believers, my beloved brethren, and you notice how he calls believers brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. Now, a poor believer in certain churches is certainly looked down upon, and yet he may be the richest man spiritually in that church. You may or may not have noticed how much is said in the Word of God about the poor. There is a great deal that you will find if you go through the Word of God. And I don't pretend to go through and lift out all, but I'd like to call your attention to the fact that God has made it very clear from Genesis to Revelation that he has a concern and consideration from the poor. And friends, I don't care what you say, and this applies to Moscow, Russia, as much as it does to New York City, Washington, D.C., or Los Angeles, California, that the poor never get a fair deal. They never have. And as long as men are natural men that have not been born again, that are not Christians, the poor will never get a fair deal in this world. And believe me, our only hope is in Jesus Christ, by the way. Now listen to the Word of God. In Job 5, verse 15... He says, He saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. And again in Job 36:15, He delivereth the poor in his affliction, and openeth their ears in oppression. And then in Psalm 9:18, the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. And then Psalm 68, 10, 
Thou, O God, hast prepared for thy goodness for the poor. The Lord heareth the poor. Psalm 69, 33. And then we have in Psalm 72, listen to this, He shall deliver the needy when he crieth the poor also in him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He will regard the prayer of the destitute, not despise their prayer. And friends, I could go on and on. And in that marvelous 45th Psalm, we are finding that there's one coming that's going to reign on this earth in righteousness. And in the 11th chapter of Isaiah, he's presented to us there again, and he's presented as the one that is going to rule for the poor. And with righteousness shall he judge the poor, we are told in Isaiah 11. May I say to you today that God has a great deal to say about this and the mistreatment of the poor on this earth by the rich and those in power is something they'll answer to God for someday. But the poor are rich in spiritual things, and that is the important thing for the poor man to see. So let me move on here. We've come down now to verse 6. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. And friends, it can be a rich corporation, or it can be a rich labor union. The powerful today are not giving the poor an honest deal. And every year, the politicians come out to us when they're running for office and tell all of us poor people that they're going to work for us, they're going to help us. And I want to tell you, they take us. And that happens. doesn't make any difference what party is in power today. And somebody's going to say, well, you sound rather cynical My friend, I was born a poor boy, and I haven't gotten very far away from that, from that day to this. From that viewpoint, I am cynical because I've seen the way that the poor are treated on this earth today. But may I say to you that their only hope is in Jesus Christ, and they've been despised by the world. Well, they want your vote, but that's about all. Now, will you notice... Verse 7, Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? And my friend, when you mistreat the poor, you're blaspheming the name of Christ. Verse 8, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. Ye do well. Now he says, If you want to please God and you want to obey Him, and discharge your responsibility. He makes it very clear here. Thou shalt love thy neighbor. And that, my friend, is the summation of the whole Mosaic law. And he's going to emphasize that. But if ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. The law condemns that. Now, somebody says, well, I didn't murder and I haven't committed adultery. You haven't? Will you listen to this? For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Now, what does he mean by that? doesn't mean if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. But it means you are guilty of breaking the commandment, no matter which one it is that you've broken. It's one thing for a 
man to be in prison, and he can be a murderer. And he can look across the aisle there, and he can say to another fellow, well, I'm not a rapist. I never broke that law. Yes, but he's back of the bars. He's a murderer. And I think it's rather ironical today that some prisoners will actually murder another prisoner that's brought in because they have no respect for him. They think his crime is so horrible. But my friend, you don't have to go into the penitentiary. You find outside people looking down upon others in the same way. My friend, we all stand before God as lawbreakers. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now, what's the law? That's the law of Christ. The Lord Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What is his commandment? This is my commandment, that you love one another. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath shown no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Stories told, and I'll tell it rather quickly, about a very wealthy couple in New York City many years ago entertaining guests one night. Their name was Mr. and Mrs. Whittemore. And in order to do something different, they went down to the Bowery that night. And when you went to the Bowery, slumming, you always had to go to the mission of Jerry McCauley. And these people went in and sat down in the back, you know, to take it all in. Well, this very wealthy couple belonged to a very fashionable church, but they had no more heard the gospel than a person living in the darkest heathenism of the world. But that night they heard Jerry McCauley preach it, and their hearts were touched. And they saw themselves as sinners. They went down and they knelt. The meat knelt that night with the rags. And they accepted Christ. And Mr. and Ms. Whittemore became workers down in that area. And she established a home for fallen girls. was probably the one that began the movement and the stories that have come out. She's called the Rose of Mulberry Band and the stories that come from her ministry there. May I say to you how we need today to recognize, friends, this idea today that we may be better than someone else, that somehow or another we look down upon them. May I say that's sinful to do that. I don't care who the man is. That man is on the same plane you are before God. That is, he's a sinner. And you and I have to come to the cross. We have to come as that rich couple came to accept Christ. The story is told that years ago in London, there was a great preacher there, a very fine young man by the name of Caesar Milan. And he was invited one time, as he was a very attractive young man, to a very large and prominent home where there was a choice musical to be put on one night during the week. And on that program, there was a young lady who was thrilling London at that time with her singing and her playing. She was outstanding, and she received a great ovation when she had finished that night. When she did, this young preacher, Caesar Milan, he threaded his way through the gathering 
and gathered around those that were congratulating her and applauding her. And when he finally came to her and got her attention, he said, Young lady, when you were singing, I sat there and I thought how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefited if you would dedicate yourself and your talents to the Lord. But, and he added this, you are just as much a sinner as the worst drunkard in the street or any harlot on Scarlet Street. But I'm glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse you from all sin if you'll come to him. And in a very haughty manner, she turned her head aside and said to him, You are very insulting, sir. And she started to walk away. And he said, Lady, I did not mean any offense, but I pray that the Spirit of God will convict you. Well, they all went home, and that night this young woman could not sleep. And at two o'clock in the morning, she knelt by the side of her bed. She took Christ as a Savior. And then she sat down, and when sitting there, Charlotte Elliott wrote the words of my favorite hymn, "'Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am in waiting not, rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come.'" And then the last stanza, "'Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come.'" May I say to you, friends, that is the basis on which all of us have to come to Christ. That's a great hymn, and it came out of an experience. Now, following through, we come to verse 14 of chapter 2 of James. "'What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? Can faith save him?' Now, there are those today that say that, well, what we have here is a contradiction with Paul, because Paul made it abundantly clear that faith could save you, that faith apart from the works of the law. And if you wanted to turn over to Galatians, you have a clear statement of Paul. In Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, let me read on here, and let me read again verse 14. What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and fail, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works as dead being alone, yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works." 
and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The demons also believe and tremble, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Now, I'm just going to read that for. Now, we have here in this section what I have divided up as the interpretation of faith, the identification of faith, and the illustration of faith. Now, we have here a definition here in the context of Scripture. Now, it's not a definitive term, so that we can see precisely Paul and James are in perfect agreement. They're discussing the same subject from different viewpoints. Now, this is what I mean, that what Paul is saying, that a man is not saved by the works or the deeds of the law. In Romans 3:28, he says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without or apart from the deeds or the works of the law. He makes that very clear there. And over in Galatians, as we have seen, that a man is not justified by works, but by faith in Christ. Now, how are you going to reconcile these two? Well, Paul and James do not stand face-to-face fighting against each other. But as someone has said, they stand back-to-back fighting opposite foes. You see, there were those that were saying that the works of the law, and they were talking now about the Mosaic law, that you had to perform the works of the law. You had to come by the law in order to be saved. Frankly, Paul is saying that the works of the law will not save you only faith in Christ. And these men, therefore, are defending the citadel of faith. Why? Well, now let's understand the use of their terminology. Paul says, saving faith, that which is genuine and real, will transform a person's life. A revolution will take place. Paul could say, what things were gained to me? Why, he says, these became lost. Well, you talk about a revolution. That was a revolution that took place in his life. And then will you listen to him? He says in 1 Corinthians 15, here beginning at verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believe in vain. That is, unless it's just an empty faith, by the way. Now, what he's saying here. It is simply this, and James is saying this. James is not talking about works of the law. James says that faith saves you, but the faith that saves you will produce works. And Paul is saying the same thing, unless you believed in vain. And you'd examine yourself, Paul says, to see whether you be in the faith or not. So that James here is talking about that which is professing faith. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man saith faith have not works? Can faith save him? Well, he's talking here about professing faith, that which is phony and counterfeit. 
I think the gravest danger that we preachers of the gospel have is that we like to see people converted, and we are willing to accept a brazen and flippant yes from some individual who says, yes, I'll trust Jesus. And it might be just an impertinent, impudent, and insolent nod of the head. It's so easy today to present that which I think is phony as a $3 bill. There's a little story that's told, and I'll pass it on to you, that the devil had a meeting with his demons to try to persuade men of the non-existence of God, since they themselves believe that there's a God. And they wondered how to do it. And also to tell people that Jesus Christ never really existed and that man should not believe in fiction. And so he was asking the demons what they thought that they could do. One demon made the suggestion that it would be very difficult to get rid of the historical Jesus. And then another demon got up and said, well, I think it'd be nice if we went down and persuaded everyone that death ended it all. They should not worry about life after death. And then another demon said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go down and tell everybody to believe that there is a God, that there is Jesus Christ, and that belief in him saves, but you can get by by just professing faith and go on living in sin as you used to. And they decided on that one. And the reason I'm almost sure that's the one they decided on is because that's the one that he uses today. Paul and James are in perfect harmony here. When Paul speaks of works, it's works of the law. And again, Paul makes that abundantly clear. If you went back to Romans, the third chapter, verse 20, Therefore he says, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul is saying, yes, the law is a mirror. It reveals you're a sinner, but it can't save you. And the works of the law cannot save you at all. And James is saying the same thing. He is saying here that you have to have something just a little bit more. And back in the 10th verse of this chapter, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and you offend in one point, he's guilty of all. And as someone has put it, man cannot be saved by perfect obedience. He cannot render it. He cannot be saved by imperfect obedience because God will not accept it. And the only solution to this is the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And James and Paul both are emphasizing that. But James is doing the same thing that Paul did. Paul in Galatians says, men are not saved by the law at all. But he also made it very clear over in the sixth chapter of Galatians. He says there, and let us not be weary in well-doing. There's a lot of doing that goes with believing, by the way. And he makes it very clear. Let him that's taught in the Word communicate unto them that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God's not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. These are things that are very clear. He made it clear back in Galatians 5, 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. Now listen, 
but faith which worketh by love. Faith has to be a working faith. And the statement I've given here many times of what John Calvin said, he says that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves, it's not alone. Now, saving faith, therefore, is alive. Professing faith is dead. And we've got today a lot of so-called professing Christians. They're members of churches. They're not in the world but zombies. They're walking around as if they're alive, but they're dead. A girl asked a teacher in a Sunday school class, how can I be a Christian and still have my own way? And the teacher gave to her Romans 8, 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. You're a child of God. You can't have your own way. You're going to do His way. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. But ye, he says, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, so that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now you can produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And if you don't, my friend, something radically wrong. A Christian doesn't do as he pleases. He does as Christ pleases. During the Depression, there was a tycoon in Pittsburgh, he went to his pastor, and he was having all kinds of problems. But he says to the pastor, finally, after he talked them over, he says, I love my Savior. I love my family. I love my church. And I love my business. But he says, you know, there are times when I feel like walking out on all four of them. And the pastor looked at him right straight in the eye and says, well, why don't you? And he says, the reason I don't is I'm a Christian. <laughs> May I say to you, friends, save in faith. That makes a Christian, it leads to good works. We're so anxious to get church members that we bring them in on the slightest profession. And as a result, there are many churches that are filled, actually, with unbelievers. Now you have here the identification of faith. Saving faith can be recognized and identified by spiritual fingerprints. There is a verification of genuine faith. Now, James used an illustration. And will you notice the illustration that he uses here? It's quite interesting. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? He says, well, you could be very pious and say to this individual, Brother, I'll pray for you, and I know the Lord will provide well, my friend, the Lord put you there as a child of God to do the providing. I get a little weary sometimes. There are many wealthy laymen across this country today. They pat me on the back and they say, Dr. McGee, you're doing the right thing. You're giving out the Word of God. They never have any part in this program. They can't make me believe they're sincere. They can't be sincere. You just can't piously say, Oh, brother, I'm for you. Are you for him? Are you back of him? My friend, a living faith produces something. You can identify. The Lord Jesus says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. And you remember Paul over in Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another 
have fulfilled the law. The point of it is, you can't say, I'm a child of God and live like a lawless individual. You can't be an outlaw and say that you're a child of God. And I don't mean that every bum that asks 25 cents from you in order to buy wine, that you're to give it to him. And I do not think that every character that professes to be a Christian, that we need to test the thing out and see whether they are or not. I learned of two incidents several years ago that warmed my heart of how a man was rendering financial assistance to one in need. And then a lady of means was supporting a missionary abroad and saying nothing in the world about it and another supporting a cause here at home. May I say to you, friends, you're telling by your life whether your faith is genuine or not. Listen to James. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead. The faith is dead. Why? Because living faith, saving faith, produces work. And you have to draw this conclusion. James is talking about the fruit of faith. Paul's talking about the root of faith. That is, that's the emphasis of both. But both of them are saying that faith alone saves. Paul says faith is going to produce fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. And the Lord Jesus Christ said that he's the vine and the branches in order that we might bring forth fruit. A minister one time was talking to a man who professed conversion, and he says, have you united with the church? And he said, no, I haven't. The dying thief never united with the church, and he went to heaven. And he says, well, have you ever sat at the Lord's table? He said, no, the dying thief never did. He was accepted. He says, have you been baptized? He said, no, the dying thief was never baptized, and he went to heaven. He says, have you given to missions? He said, no, the dying thief did not give to mission, and he was not judged for it. And then the disgusted minister said to him, Well, my friend, the difference between you two seems to be that he was a dying thief and you are a living thief. And that, my friend, is the thing. We can sing, you know, all for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And we don't even use the one tongue we got. And then we can sing where the whole realm of nature mine. It'll be too small to give to him, and then we give nothing at all. Faith saves, but saving faith produces something. That's all James is saying. He's talking about faith, friends. And he gives an illustration of faith. In fact, he gives two illustrations. Verse 21, "...was not Abraham our father justified by works, and he'd offered Isaac his son upon the altar." Now, Paul says that he was justified by faith. And back in Genesis, we're told he was justified by faith. Now, I've gone over this before on several occasions, and let me say this, and you can just narrow it down to this. He was justified when he offered his son Isaac? Well, the question is, did he offer his son Isaac? And the answer is, no, he didn't. What was his work of faith then? How did work save him? His faith caused him to lift that knife and to do a thing that he didn't believe God had ever asked him to do. But since God had asked him, he was willing to do. He believed God had raised him from the dead. He didn't go through with it. I think this is a choice illustration, by the way. You demonstrate your faith by your actions. And the actions of this man was he believed God. 
Now, he uses another illustration here. And I'm going to drop down and pick up that in verse 25. In like manner also was not Rahab the hollered, justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Now, how was she judged by works? Well, she received the messengers, sent them out the other way. Did you know that that woman living there in the city of Jericho, she jeopardized her life? She turned her back on the old life and on her own people, by the way. And what was gained to her became loss. And she didn't say to these men, I'll just stand on the sidelines when you enter. And I will sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. I will not say that Jesus saves and keeps and satisfies. I will not say hallelujah, praise the Lord when you enter the city. She said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to hide the spies because I believe God's going to give you this land. We've been hearing for 40 years and I believe God. And my friend, she believed God and she became involved, by the way. She was justified before God by her faith. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them, believed not. But before man, before her own people, and before the Israelites, she justified by works. Several years ago, many years ago now, I went to a nursery and bought a bare root. It was labeled Santa Rosa Plum. And it wasn't as big as a broom handle. And it looked like it's about as much a lie. I was told to put it in the ground a certain way, and I did. Watched it, and that next spring it began to come out with leaves. And in three years, there was blossoms on it, then there was fruit. And do you know what was on that tree? What kind of fruit is on that tree? You're right. Plums. The root of that tree was a plum root. And faith is the root. And the root produces the kind of fruit that the root is. And if you have faith, a living faith, there's going to be fruit in your life. Again, Paul says, examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. And James says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And Vernon McGee says that also too, my friend. Now, I have a book on James, and it's on this chapter, chapter 3, that we've come to. And it has a sensational title. Now, I don't go in for sensationalism, but my sensationalism is just as large as it is in the Bible. And my title is a Bible title. For chapter 3, I've entitled it, Hell on Fire. And that is the expression we're going to see that's used in this particular chapter here to talk about the tongue. Now, we've heard a great deal in our day about freedom of speech and freedom of the press. That's sort of a sacred cow right now, this idea of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Freedom of the press means that they can brainwash you according to the liberal viewpoint. And freedom of speech means that you can use vile language. I'd like for somebody to get freedom of the ears. I only have one mouth, and I've got two ears, and I think that my ears ought to be protected as well as my mouth also. And therefore, we need freedom of the ears today as well, freedom of speech. 
But this, by the way, is freedom of speech in God's university. That is one way that I have labeled this particular chapter here. And I could also put another label on it. God bugs your conversation. Now, there's been a great question about whether you've got a right to bug. Well, God has had that right for a long time, and he's heard everything that you say. It's estimated that the average person says about 30,000 words every day. I know two or three that I think say a few more than that. And that's enough to make a good-sized book. And these folks that I know, they could write a whole series of books on what they say in one day. But you and I in a lifetime could fill up a library with what we say. God has that recorded, by the way, because he bugs your conversation. Now, this present freedom of speech movement, I suppose, began out here on the West Coast at the Berkeley campus, and it was given coverage by all the news media out of all proportion to its importance because it was another attempt at brainwashing. And a great many taxpayers and prominent citizens here in California were evidently concerned that a great university, which their tax money supports, can be shut down and made a ridiculous spectacle by a few, at that time, they were called beatniks, hippies, and punks. For that is exactly what they were. While in that university, the majority of the students were intimidated, the serious students, and it reflected upon their good intentions to get an education. Well, there was a change of administration. It's better now, but may I say the scars still remain. Now, that problem is not only out yonder in the university and in the news media today, it's in the church. And the problem there is the problem of gossip. Each one of us who's a Christian, and that applies to you and it applies to me, and that concerns freedom of speech. Now, James here, and as I've indicated, he's like the book of Proverbs, and he has a university. And James is the dean of God's university as we consider this controversial subject. And Dean James has quite a bit to say concerning this matter of the use and abuse of the tongue. And I like to think that we go into the laboratory and that we are now going to make another experiment. You see, we're in a section where God is testing our faith, and he tests our faith in many different ways. We'll mention that when we finish this, because this will be the last chapter. Now, God tests our faith by our tongue. And so we want to reach upon the shelf and take down an acid. And actually, this acid is more potent than hydrochloric or sulfuric or any other acid that man has concocted. And the label on the bottle here is tongue. And we're not talking about the chemistry of the tongue, but the theology of the tongue. And he's already indicated he was going to come to this. He said way back in verse 26 of chapter 1, "...if any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain." 
And then, you remember, he said something about to be quick to hear and slow to speak, because you've got two ears. Now, God gave them to you so you could hear probably twice as much as you could say, because he only gave you two mouths. I mean, one mouth. Some have two, but most normal people have just one mouth. Some are double-tongued, you see. They say one thing on one side of it and something else on the other side of it. Now, let's come to this tremendous subject, because actually the tongue is the most dangerous weapon in the world. It's more deadly than the atom bomb, and there's actually no inspection of the tongue. Some wag made the statement that it was a miracle in Balaam's day for an ass to speak. And today it's a miracle when they keep quiet. Or somebody's put it like this, it takes a baby two years to learn to talk and 50 years to learn to keep his mouth shut. There's a man fishing down here on one of the piers here in Southern California, and two women walked out. He was out there alone, and he had been fishing for several hours, hadn't caught anything, finally pulled up a fish. It wasn't a very large one. And these two women took upon themselves to rebuke this man. They said, aren't you ashamed of yourself so cruelly catching this poor little fish? And the man, without even looking up, because he was a little discouraged anyway, he says, maybe you're right, lady, but if the fish had kept his mouth shut, he wouldn't have been caught. And someone else put it like this. If your lips would keep from slips, five things to observe with care. To whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how, and when, and where. And it has been translated in many different ways. And practically every nation has had something to say about this. I want to take this from Spurgeon Salt Cellars. It's one of his publications And pass this on to you. The boneless tongue, so small and weak, can crush and kill, declared the Greek. The tongue destroys a greater horde, the Turk asserts, than does the sword. The Persian proverb wisely saith, a lengthy tongue in early death, or sometimes takes this form instead, don't let your tongue cut off your head. The tongue can speak a word whose speed say the Chinese outstrips the steed. While Arab sages this impart, the tongue's great storehouse is the heart. From Hebrew wit, the maxim sprung, though feet should slip, ne'er let the tongue. The sacred writer crowns the whole, who keeps the tongue, doth keep his soul. Now, all of these are very wise and very wonderful by the way. And I believe today, frankly, that the most dangerous thing in the world, as we've said, is the tongue. I think the church is more harmed by the termites within than the woodpeckers on the outside. And someone has put it like this, thou art master of the unspoken word, but the spoken word is master of you. If you've once said it, friends, it's too bad. And I found being on radio, you sure have to be very careful today because you can be misunderstood, and we need to recognize that. Now will you notice 
That's all preliminary as we come now into this chapter here, because I want us to look at it. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, "...my brethren..." Be not many teachers. Now, you notice, not masters, but teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment. Now, that's very important, by the way, to note that he's saying here that the teacher has a greater responsibility. And the reason for that is that there is a grave danger in the mouth of teaching today and teaching the wrong thing. I am absolutely amazed, I'm overwhelmed at the way so many Christian folk are falling for all kinds of teaching that has to do with, well, some have to do with prophecy. They fall for most anything. All you need is a glib tongue. Then There are those that fall for all kinds of methods today and cults and isms. And yet, these people are actually, as far as the total Word of God is concerned, they are absolutely ignorant. And that's my reason for saying, and I rejoice in these home Bible classes. I think they have filled a real vacuum that existed today. But I find that some of them, they're teaching all kinds of vagaries, giving a wrong interpretation. And they need to know more of the Word of God than they seem to have. And it has ministered to a great deal of conceit and pride on the part of many of these teachers. A young fellow that I had the privilege of leading to Christ, he has gone off on a tangent I tried to get him to study the Word. He did not. And now he started a class. But he's very glib of tongue. And someone that was in his class went to him and said to him, Did you know that what you've taught is contrary to most of the Bible teachers, and especially the man that led you to the Lord? And he said, Who's that? And then the party told him who it was. And he said, Oh, McGee? (laughs) He said, Well... Maybe he needs to correct his theology. Well, frankly, I think maybe I do. I'm amazed the more I study the Word of God, the thing that discourages me, it reveals my ignorance, not my knowledge. And I want to tell you, I feel like I've got a long way to go. But this young man reminds me of what one preacher said about a young one that started out. They said he seems to be very proud. This man said, yes, he thinks he's the fourth person of the Trinity. Well, I'm afraid that it develops that. The tongue is very dangerous because he's saying here, My brethren, be not many teachers. That is, don't think that the minute you're saved that you can start a Bible class and teach the book of Revelation, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment. Now, I frankly feel like I'm more responsible than some other Christian might be. And I don't think I'm as responsible as someone else. The more opportunity you have to give out the Word of God, the more that you are responsible. Now, will you notice, he says, "...for in many things we all stumble." And I like that way of translating. And here it means, "...in many ways." "...in many ways we all stumble." 
all of us do, for that matter. And there's no exception to that, by the way. And he goes on to say, "...but if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man." And that means he's a full-grown Christian, where he should be as any baby growing up. When a baby's four years old, he's a little boy or a little girl, as the case may be. And when he's 21, why, he's ready to marry. The same as a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. In other words, if he can control his speech, he can control his entire body. In fact, his life. Now, in many ways, we all stumble. But remember, the tongue actually is the index of our lives. The tongue lifts man from the animal world. It keeps him from being a gibbering ape or an aping parrot. Man's not an inarticulate animal or a mockingbird. Man can put thought into words. He can express himself. He can understand. He can communicate on the highest level. The tongue is a badge that you and I wear, and it identifies us. It's the greatest index to life. It's the table of contents of our life. It's the fraternity pen of character. And it gives us a way. It tells who we are. Quite a few years ago, I was rushing with my wife and my little girl then. We'd been speaking out in Salt Lake City at a conference, and I was rushing to a conference in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I came over the high Sierras at Donner Pass, and I stopped at the little town there, don't even know the name of it, on the side of the road at a filling station. And my wife and daughter got out to go to the comfort station, and I just stepped out of the car, and I said to a young man that came around from the back of the car, I said, fill her up. That's all I said. And as I looked out at those mountains and that lovely scenery, and there's still some snow about, why, I was conscious that he was eyeing me. And finally, I turned to him, looked at him, and smiled. He said to me, are you Dr. McGee? And I said, I sure am. Do I know you? And he said, no. I said, do you know me? Well, he says, no, I've never seen you before. Well, I said, how in the world did you know me? Well, he says, up here, especially during the winter time, when we're all snowed in, we listen to you every Sunday night. And we've been doing it for years. He said, I'd know that voice anywhere. Well, you see, my tongue gave me away. It still gives me away. I had the experience in the nation Israel, in the Dan Carmel Hotel several years ago at Haifa, and a couple. I noticed them eyeing me. I was talking to a friend in the lobby. And finally, they came over and they said the same thing. Are you Dr. McGinn? I said, yes. And they said, well, we listen to you on the radio. Way out there, they recognized the speech. And you remember that little maid said to Simon Peter, Thy speech betrayeth thee. He couldn't deny where he'd come from at all. And it tells who you are, your speech does. Your tongue gives you away. It tells where you came from. It tells whether you're ignorant or educated, cultured or crude, whether you're clean or unclean whether you're vulgar or refined, whether you're a believer or a blasphemer, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're guilty or not guilty. May I say that I'm of the opinion that, that if we had a tape 
recorded message of everything you've said the past month, my friend, you wouldn't want the world to hear it. Now, let's put the acid down on the tongue here, your tongue and mine, and we're going to find out he mentions here an unbridled and unrestrained tongue. Will you listen to this? Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Now, this is the horse, by the way. And it was David that said, I'll take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. David says, I want to give a right kind of a testimony. Therefore, I want to put a bridle on my mouth. And friends, there are a lot of Christians today that ought to have a bridle put on their mouths. Now, in Psalm 39, 1, it says, I said I'll take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. Now, I want to go down to Psalm 32, verse 9. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. And there are a great many people today, and I'm afraid Christians, that go around with their foot in their mouth all the time. Now, the bridle bits are not impressive in size. If you've seen a bridle bit that goes on a horse but they'll hold a high-spirited horse in check. Keep him from running away. I think many of us have a faint recollection, that is, some of us, of horse and buggy days. And I've seen a horse run away and bring death and destruction, turn a buggy over. Now, the tongue can run away. Someone has said that, speaking of a certain individual, said, you know, said his mind starts his tongue to wagging, and then his mind goes off and leaves it. And a great many go through life like that. And there needs to be a bridle for the tongue. Now, it's going to change the figure of speech. Behold also the ships, which though they are so great and are driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, wherever the pilot will it, they have a rudder on them. And that is the thing that they can be controlled by a little rudder that you don't even see, my friend. And a fierce storm may drive a ship. A little rudder can control it. The tongue can change the course of our lives. Men have been ruined by the tongue. Many of the fair name of a woman has been wrecked by some gossip. The tongue is more dangerous than a runaway horse. It's a storm at sea. And today, I think that liquor is eating at the vitals of this nation. But did you know that the tongue is condemned more in Scripture than alcohol is condemned? And I think the most dangerous thing today, as dangerous as alcohol is and liquor today, it may bring our nation down, yet the tongue is even more dangerous than that. And it's one of the things that God says that he hates. In Proverbs six seventeen, he says, A lying tongue was one of the seven things God hates. We must leave off there until next time. May God richly bless you, my beloved.
Now, if there ever was a message that gets down to the nitty-gritty, it's this message here that deals with the tongue, because most of us find ourselves in this spot here where we recognize that the tongue gets us into trouble, and the tongue reveals who we are. Now, last time, James used the figure of speech of putting bits in the mouth of a horse, and the ship is guided with a very small rudder, a great ship is. And the tongue today, a tongue should be controlled like that. And he says in verse 5, where we begin today, "...even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth." Now, the tongue can really get us into trouble. No question about that. And someone again has put it in words like this, "...a careless word may kindle strife, a cruel word may wreck a life, a bitter word may hate instill, a brutal word may smite and kill." A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. So today we need to recognize the importance of the tongue. It's all important. It actually tells who we are and reveals who we are. So many people have written in and have been amazed the way we teach the Word, which is a very simple method, which we use purposely, because we believe that's the way it should be taught, as we've said, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so the kiddies can get them, and that means the grown people can get them down there also. And that's where it should be, and as God said, He didn't say, feed my giraffes, He said, feed my sheep and there are a lot of little lambs. But the thing that had a tremendous effect upon me was many years ago. In fact, it was right after World War II, and it was when General Montgomery of the Eighth Army in Italy, and he was that great British commander, he made a statement to the army before he left. He said to the army, and all of his generals were there, he says, command must be personal, and it must be verbal. Otherwise, it will have no success, because it's wrapped up in the human factor. Continuing on, he said this, I often have at the back of my mind a passage from the New Testament, except ye utter by the tongue words that are easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? That is 1 Corinthians 14, 9. And that's the kind of tongue I want to speak in today, is a tongue that the little child, and I have letters from children, and that the older ones can. And as someone said, how in the world could that same message have brought a nine-year-old child to the Lord and at the same time brought a professor at the University of Ohio. I don't know. I must confess, I don't know. But I do believe that God blesses His Word, and it must be taught simply. Now, he goes on here to say something else about the tongue. He says, 
And the tongue, verse 6 now, chapter 3 of James, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among your members, that it defileth the whole body, and it's set on fire, the course of nature, and it's set on fire of hell. Now, that's where I got the title for my book on James, that is, on the third chapter. Hell on fire. That's what the tongue can be. And it is in many cases. And, by the way, this little book is available to those that support the program and those that would like to have it and would want to be a partner with us in this ministry and send a gift for its support. But be sure and indicate that in your letter, by the way. Now, this is something that I think is quite impressive, my friend, that the tongue is compared to a forest fire. I don't know whether you've ever seen a forest fire or not, but here in California, they're very devastating, absolutely, in many cases, uncontrolled. They have to burn themselves out in most cases. Now, fire has been, of course, one of the greatest friends of man and nature. In fact, the evolutionist likes to say that the dawn of civilization came when man found out he could use fire. When it was under control, it could warm our bodies, it cooks our food, and it's tragedy, though, when a house is on fire. But when fire is under control, it makes power to turn wheels. The danger is when it's out of control. And you hear a fire siren rushing through the night, and you know there are a group of men making a frantic effort to put it out. Present civilization, even today, is not able to control a fire. A London fire in 1666 destroyed London. Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern in Chicago and started it there. And yet today we see great devastation caused in our day. And as we've said, some historians say civilization began when man discovered fire. Now the tongue is like a fire. When it's under control, it's a blessing. When it's out of control, it's a blight. It can be a cure or it can be a curse. In Proverbs 12, verse 18, There is that that speaketh like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Tongue can be like a sword, kill you, but it also can be health itself. What a picture this is of the tongue. And again, in Proverbs 15:14, "...the heart of him that hath understanding seeketh knowledge, but the mouth of fools feedeth on foolishness." And now, the proverb I think I've given you before, "...thou art master of the unspoken word, but the spoken word is master of you." You haven't said it, you can't be held responsible, but once you've said it, why... I tell you, it's been said, like the mistake I made some time ago, and it really was a slip of the tongue because I used the wrong man for General Nathan Bedford Forrest, is the one who said, who gets out of the fustest with the mostest. I made a blunder at that time, and it was a slip of the tongue, you see. And you remember that man Simon Peter, 
His tongue betrayed him, but he denied he knew his Lord. But on the day of Pentecost, who was it that the Lord used? That blundering, stumbling, bumbling fellow, Simon Peter. Now, forest and brush fires, they scorch, they blacken, they're a plague. And a tongue can burn through a church, or burn through a community, burn through a town, and even burn through a nation. Now, when it says it's set on fire of hell, there are those that have questioned my use of that word in the title of my book, that this is not the proper translation. The Greek word here is Gehenna. It's not Sheol. Actually, this is the correct word for hell. It is the same thing that you find in Revelation as the lake of fire. And here it's the valley of Hinnom, where the fire never went out. And this word is only used 12 times in the New Testament. And the Lord Jesus is the one who used it 11 times. And James used it only one time in right here. And this is a correct translation. The tongue set on fire of hell. Now, we're not through with the tongue. Notice verse 7 here. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed by mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. I remember several years ago when I was much younger and before I was married, a group of us young folk, including some of the young couples, when a circus would come to town, while we would go out at night to some home and have a time of fellowship, and then we would have a late dinner, and then we'd go down to the railroad yards for the circus to come in, and we'd watch the circus unload. And the parade of moving it out to the circus grounds was in progress, and we'd go along with it. And we'd watch them put up the tent. One morning, we were invited to have breakfast with them in the cook tent. And my, what a thrill it was. And then they would generally put up the tent where the animals were. That's where you entered the circus. And Clyde Beatty, who had had his own circus for a long time, why, he was then with the Ringland brothers, Barnum and Bailey, and he had charge of the wild animals. And he was the one who went in the cage and put them through their paces. And we were in that tent, not at that time as paid customers, but we're just watching them put up everything. Clyde Beatty went to a cage in which there were some little lion cubs. I think there were three or four of them. He took them out and began to play with them. He would roll them and they would bite at him, and he would grab them and turn them over and just having a big time with them. And we went over and asked him the question of why he did that. He said, I would never go in a cage with a lion that I had not brought up from the time it was a cub, because you can't train an old lion. And I begin with these little ones. And when they grow up in a fierce Fine-looking young lions, and they didn't use old lions then. Clyde Beatty didn't. He said, I put these fierce-looking lions in the cage. But he said, they know me, and I know them. May I say to you, you can tame a lion. You can tame an elephant. 
but you can't tame the little tongue. One little animal no zoo has in captivity. No circus can make it perform. The tongue can no man tame. Only a regenerate tongue in a redeemed body that God has tamed can be used for him. And have you ever noticed that Paul said that we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth? The Lord Jesus said we're to sing a duet and it's to be in tune. The Lord Jesus said what's in the heart's going to come out. Somebody's put it like this. What is in the well of the heart will come out through the bucket of the mouth. And you're going to say it sooner or later. And have you ever noticed the man that Christ touched his tongue? I thought that was always a very wonderful thing, that the Lord Jesus touched his tongue. Now, let's come on down here, because we're not quite through here. He says, verse 9, "...therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things." ought not so to be. Now, the tongue that you and I have is capable of praising God or blaspheming God. The tongue is what lifts man above the animal world. Man, as we've said, is not a gibbering ape. Man's not a mockingbird either. Man can communicate with man and he can communicate with God. And when a man on Sunday can sing like an angel and then talk like a demon during the week. Well, you label him. The Bible calls him a hypocrite. You can call him anything that you want to. I had a marvelous experience of that when I announced in the bank I worked that I was going to study for the ministry. The vice president, one of them, called me in, and he'd been a good friend of mine. He knew something of my life and how I'd lived. And he said, Vernon... I hope you're going to be a genuine preacher and a genuine servant of God. He says, the reason today I'm not a Christian is because of an experience I had during the war. Now, this is World War I. He said that they set up a bank out at the old powder plant at Old Hickory out of Nashville, Tennessee. And it was a branch bank, and they had difficulty balancing out there. One of the tellers was a soloist in one of the downtown churches in Nashville. And he said one day that he came out of the church, and one of the ladies there that had heard him sing a solo said, you know, that man's the most wonderful man in the world. He sings just like an angel. And this vice president didn't say anything. But that woman had business at the bank out at Old Hickory. She had property there. And she came out one day, and that man was a teller in the bank out there. And so this man who was vice president, he was talking to this lady, and all of a sudden they heard the vilest language he said he thinks he'd ever heard came from this teller who was the soloist at this church. He attempted to balance, and he didn't balance, and I was a teller for several years, and I know that's just about as discouraging as anything that can happen to you. You know you've got to go back over the whole transaction of the day. And this man began to rip out a blasphemy after And this lady says, who in the world is that? And he says, why, that's that soloist that sings like an angel on Sunday. A man can bless God 
with this mouth, or you can blaspheme God. You can do one of the two with the mouth you've got. And the Lord Jesus says what's in the heart's going to be coming up through the mouth. That tongue's going to say it. Now, verse 11, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter water? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh. In other words, a man can be two-faced. He can be double-minded and a forked-tongue individual. He can say good and bad. But no fountain down here is going to give forth both sweet and bitter. And a tree won't bear figs and olives. I don't know whether you could bud one on the other or not, but it would have to be an unnatural growth. But some people, they've been grafted, and graft is a good word, by the way, for them. They can praise God on Sunday. Now, the tongue reveals genuine faith, by the way, because with the mouth, confession is made of that which is in the heart. Verse 13, who is a wise man? And endued with knowledge among you, let him show out of a good life his works with meekness and wisdom. You see, the tongue can reveal genuine faith. It can give a testimony for God. It can speak wisdom. Now, verse 14, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. Now, strife and bitterness are not the fruits of faith at all. And the tongue, you see, can stir that sort of thing up. And he's making now a contrast between what the tongue does and the tongue of even a foolish believer and the tongue of a wise believer. In fact, an uncontrolled tongue today raises the question, in any man's mind, whether he's a child of God or not. You can't make me believe that you can cuss six days a week and then sing in the choir on Sunday. I don't think you can. You can't tell dirty jokes and then teach a Sunday school class and tell about the love of Jesus on Sunday. That tongue you've got, my friend, can do either one. But if it does both, it is that which stirs up strife. And we're told here, lie not against the truth. And a lying tongue is one that denies the Lord during the week by his conversation. Now, verse 15, he says, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, demoniacal. Now, in other words, what he's making here very clear is, these things do not originate from God, and it comes not from him at all. It's earthly, it's sensual, and it's demoniacal. You know, knowledge is proud that she's learned so much. Wisdom is humble that she knows no more. The wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demoniacal. You see, for where envying and strife are, there is confusion and every evil work. And we're going to deal with this in the next chapter because he's going to define to us what worldliness really is.
And what a shock that's going to be to a lot of people. Verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above, it's first pure. It's not mingled a mix. It's no mixture. It's pure. It's the original. Then peaceable. And actually, the thought is that out from the pure comes peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. These are verses that do not need very much elucidation at all. Dr. Samuel Zwamer mentions the fact that false teaching always produces strife and envy and trouble. He said this, "...you cannot explain the wickedness of the world as merely human. It is human plus something. And that is why non-Christian religions are successful. They are supernatural, but from beneath. And anything that causes division and strife, and I don't care whose church it's in, it's not of the Lord. You may be sure of that." And you may boast of fundamentalism, but if you're causing strife, I want to tell you, you got up the wrong flag. Now he says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by them that make peace. Now, friends, we conclude chapter 3, this first major division of James. And we gave the first three chapters the title of Verification of Genuine Faith, the saving faith must be made real. And there's a difference in faith, by the way. You can believe the wrong thing, or you can just nod your head and call that faith. Now, faith, that is saving faith, produces something. And so God, first of all, he tests faith by trials. We saw that. I'd like today, as we move through that first section very briefly, give you a quotation that is found in Dr. Lehman Strauss's book on James. And by the way, I do not have his book listed in the notes. And the reason is I was not acquainted with it at the time. And I made that list some time ago. And I ought to put it in there because he has one of the best books on the epistle of James. Well, he is quoted from someone else who's also a friend of mine, who has suffered a great deal. And that's Dr. Richard Sumi, who is now at Dallas Seminary and was formerly at the Wheaton Bible Church, and he served also in Patterson, New Jersey. He's an outstanding Bible teacher, and he's had kidney trouble. He's been on a machine now for several years. And if there's any man that knows what it is to suffer, he certainly knows that. Now, Dr. Strauss quotes from Dr. Sumi, and now I'm going to give you that quotation because it made a great impression on me because I knew it did not come from a preacher who was just giving his theory, his idea. This comes from a man that has suffered. Listen to him. Life on earth would not be worth much if every source of irritation were removed. Yet most of us rebel against the things that irritate us and count as heavy loss what ought to be rich gain. We are told that the oyster is wiser, that when an irritating object like a bit of sand gets under the mantle of his shell, he simply covers it with the most precious part 
of his being, and he makes of it a pearl. The irritation that it was causing is stopped by encrusting it with the pearly formation. A true pearl is therefore simply a victory over irritation. Every irritation that gets into our lives today is an opportunity for pearl culture. The more irritations the devil flings at us, the more pearls we may have. We need only to welcome them and cover them completely with love, that most precious part of us, and the irritation will be smothered out as the pearl comes into being. What a store of pearls we may have if we will. And I think Dick Sumi is going to have quite a few pearls, by the way. And that comes from his heart and comes out of experience. And I wanted to share that with you today. Now, God tests faith by trials. Then we saw that God does not test faith with evil. Evil comes from our flesh within, the troubles on the inside of us. Now, the next way God tests us, though, he tests us by the Word. And not by the doctrine we hold, we may be fundamental. But what do we do? Are we living that out? The thing that James is saying, if you're going to be a witness for Christ today, knowing is not enough. Now, that's important. That's the foundation. But you need to build something, as Paul says, on the foundation. No other foundation can any man lay. You can't lay the foundation But my friend, you can build on it, and if you're on the foundation, you're going to build something. Now, we have another test. God tests faith by attitude and action in respect of persons. And then God tests faith by good works. Good works are important for a child of God, but not for the unsaved. And we're going to see that as we come to it now in today's lesson. Now, in chapter 3, last time, we saw that God tests faith by the tongue. The tongue is your fraternity pen. Tongue tells who you are.